Luke eleven thirty seven to forty four. Luke eleven thirty seven. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Well, our Lord, after his discourse, he has a Pharisee, one of his antagonists, one of the groups of authorities and leaders of the people, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, uh, other groups existed in the time. The Pharisees, one group that were looking for ways to find fault with Christ. It's uncertain as to why this Pharisee asked and invited Jesus to have lunch with him, but likely it was to nitpick and to fault find something in Christ. So he obliges. Jesus goes to the house. He knows what to expect. He knows what the situation is among the religious leaders. But he goes anyways in order to encounter this Pharisee and those invited guests at the table. Verse 38, And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. The Pharisees, through the traditions of the elders, they had ritual washings. There were some washings that were uh, injunctions of the law of Moses. There were some washings that, that, that were supposed to be undertaken because of the law of Moses. But the traditions of the elders, or the traditions of the rabbis, the traditions that the Pharisees adopted, these traditions were above the law of Moses. They were not in the law of Moses. They were above the law of Moses. They were in excess. They were their own traditions, their own inventions, their own fabrications. And they would, in a sense, baptize their traditions by saying, well, no, we have insight from God too. Or the Holy Spirit also works through us. So on. They would make some excuse as to why they invented this new doctrine or this new practice. This is what happened. And so the Pharisee, when he sees this, he notices that Jesus himself does not practice what everybody else is practicing as a tradition of the elders. This is not the first time that Jesus has encountered this. Another incident like this was in Matthew 15 and a parallel in Matthew, or Mark chapter 7. Matthew 15 and Mark 7, where Jesus had a similar incident occur and he comments on it and he rails against those who do the wrong thing. That is, they subvert the word of God. That's really what the problem is. We note in verse 38, it simply says the Pharisee saw it and was surprised. It does not say whether the Pharisee spoke up or not. Perhaps he did, perhaps he did not. It's not always that the Pharisees first say something. It's sometimes that Jesus sees what's going on in their minds. He can see 
that their minds are racing and they're about to say something or they're about to act in a certain way. Probably that's what happened here. Probably that's what happened here that the Pharisee just saw and Jesus is now going to respond because he sees a surprised look on the face of the Pharisee. 39. But the Lord said to him, directly to him, because he sees the surprise. And this is with other guests at the table. We know that other guests are at the table because it says in verse 45, one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. There were others at the table. It wasn't just Jesus and the Pharisee. Others were there. And yet Jesus addresses the Pharisee with the look of surprise and answers in this way. Verse 39. Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. Observe, he says, now you Pharisees. When you hear that expression, now you whatever, now you crook, now you criminal, now you robber, now you or whatever we might add to that, when that is used, we know that we are holding the person in contempt, right? We are holding that person guilty. We know that that person is a miscreant or some criminal or some lowlife who deserves to be addressed in some way to expose who he is. That's what Jesus does here in front of everybody and at the table, which we would also notice that Jesus' rebuke of this Pharisee and the others at the table, notice he was being fed and yet he insulted them. Have you heard the expression, we should never bite the hand that feeds us? People use that as an excuse when they are underlings in some business or some corporation or some organization, some ministry in the church. They will never say anything against the pastor because, or, or the treasurer of the church or someone like that, somebody in authority, because I don't want to bite the hand that feeds me. They, they make that as an excuse not to speak up when they see some injustice. When they see unrighteousness, they use that as an excuse not to speak up. Well, Jesus is biting the hand that feeds him right here. We don't even know if they finished the meal. We don't know how far it got. All that we know is verse 53. After Jesus rails against him and the others, verse 53, and when he left there, that is that house and the meal, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. This is how Jesus responds. He doesn't care about who's feeding him. He doesn't care. He sees wickedness happening. He sees unrighteousness being promoted. So he speaks up. He speaks up whenever any kind of evil is happening, whether the person announces it or not, whether the person wants to hear it or not. He announces what needs to be announced to the one who is uh, perpetrating evil. 39 continues to say, what do the Pharisees do? Oh, by the way, when he says, now you Pharisees, Although there is a single Pharisee that he's confronting, he knows that this one Pharisee is a part of a bigger group. And so Jesus is not reluctant to put them all in one basket and to say you all are the same. Even though it is true that there was likely an exception here or there, he put them all in one group. 
whether it's priests, whether it's Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, whoever they are, he lumps them all together, which shows us too that it is possible and right for us to generalize, as Jesus generalizes here. He's not saying it's impossible for any Pharisee to come to believe in Christ or any scribe, because we do know that scribes did come to know, and we do know that priests came to know. For example, in Acts uh, chapter 6, verse 7, that many of the priests were turning to the faith in Acts 6, 7, though he would speak against the priesthood, speak against the Pharisees, speak against any group, because the, for the most part, whatever percent it is, a very high percentage of them were wicked people. And for the few not to realize that or not realize that soon enough shows that they were going along with it or they were too numb to what is happening all around them. Something was amiss, but when the few are told that that's wrong, the few come out of that group. The few come out of the priesthood or the few come out of the party of the Pharisees or of the Sadducees or whatever it may be. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's exposing the whole group so that a few of them in the group might realize they're in the wrong place and get out of that place. Then, what does he say about them? This is a basic characteristic of hypocrisy. He's accusing the Pharisees of hypocrisy. You Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. Of what value is it when we have a cup or platter to clean only the outside of it, but not the inside of it? Of what value is it? What, of what good is it? We don't want to use that cup or platter again, right? When the inside of it is filthy and dirty, it's been used for some other previous meal or for some other purpose, and then you're going to put food in there again and eat from that? No, we don't want to do that. We know that that's wrong, but this is the description that Jesus gives of the Pharisees. On the inside... They have robbery and wickedness. They love, they covet, they love possessions, they love money, they covet it, and they find ways, sneaky ways, to exploit the people, especially widows' houses, as Jesus said. And for, uh, for their con greater condemnation is pronounced on them, as Jesus says, because they devour widows' houses. They even exploit widows' instead of helping widows, taking their money. So this is the kind of robbery and wickedness that characterizes them. Of what value, then, is it to be a hypocrite? That is, on the outside show that you are clean, but on the inside be filthy. Isn't this what Jesus says in Luke 12? Look at Luke 12, verse 1. Luke 12, 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. He's speaking of the day of ju judgment. On the day of judgment, eventually everything that was hidden Every filthy thing that was undisclosed will be revealed. And what kind of people are they? They are those who have leaven and they are hypocrites. Leaven, a little leaven or yeast, leavens the whole lump of dough. So leaven being a symbol of sin, just a little bit of sin will permeate and penetrate the rest 
of the body. The rest of the person, the rest of all of his acquaintances, whether it's in church or workplace, wherever it is, and it will spread unless it is removed, unless it is removed and dealt with in the proper way. But the Pharisees are experts in this. These are religious authorities, religious officials. They know a lot of the Bible. They teach a lot of the Bible. They translate the Bible. They transcribe the Bible. They know a lot of what's in the Bible. But they don't practice the gist of the Bible. They get into these tangents, these obscure traditions, doctrines and deeds, obscure ones. They focus so much attention on that that they miss the common point. They miss the basic point of the Bible. This is a hypocrite. They pretend that a religious ritual, that is, I go to church, I go to church once a month, I go to church twice a month, I'm okay, I'm okay with God, and I I put something in the offering plate, or I've been baptized, or I'm a member over there, and I'm a member in good standing. They do their religious duty in some religious, ritualistic, superstitious way and think that just because I do this act, therefore, God will accept me. God will receive me into his kingdom. I will get to heaven because I helped so-and-so or because I gave so-and-so or because I showed up, whatever it may be. And some of the denominations within Christianity are very, very fond of inventing rituals in order to make the people think that if they conduct those rituals, then they will be just fine with God on the day of judgment. The Pharisees did that. And any group, whether it's high church or low church, whether it's sophisticated or, or unsophisticated group of people claiming to be Christians, we should not invent traditions that undermine the Bible. You see, that's the covering that people give. They say, oh, no, 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 this new idea or this new tradition or this new doctrine, it doesn't contradict the Bible. It conforms to the Bible. It's in harmony with the Bible. It doesn't contradict. Well, no, we would never do anything to contradict the Word of God. It's the Word of God. We're just helping you to understand better or helping you to understand how in a better, more closer way that you can approach God by doing this or that. This is what people do. That's a deception to say that they're not contradicting the Bible. The moment they come up with something and expect people to obey it outside of the Bible, then it becomes a tradition of men. And as Jesus said in Matthew 15, thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You nicely set aside the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. You find a a coy and, and slick way of undermining the Bible in order for you to get your ritual in the door. And no matter what the ritual is, even if it's a biblical ritual misunderstood, even if it's a biblical ritual misunderstood, example, circumcision. Did God not in Genesis 17 institute circumcision for Abraham and his descendants, his male descendants? Did he not? To circumcise everyone on the eighth day, unless they were a convert and they were an adult, then it would be on the eighth day of infancy. So, that's what he instituted. Moses reiterated it in the Law of Moses. Leviticus chapter 12. He reiterated that that practice should remain. But what was the purpose of that circumcision? Was the purpose of that circumcision, that ritual, in order to guarantee that everyone who was circumcised, that is every male, would go to heaven? 
No, because we know Ishmael was circumcised when he was 13 years old and he was the son of the devil. And others were circumcised, yet they were not true believers. Throughout the Old Testament, they were not true believers. So it was not to guarantee that somebody would get to heaven. And it was not even to add to something God had already said. The purpose of circumcision was not to believe in the gospel and also be circumcised. Because Galatians tells us, and even the prophets tell us, like Jeremiah does in Jeremiah chapter 9, there is no value in being circumcised if your behavior and your faith show that you are in your heart uncircumcised. There's no value in the ritual unless you understand the meaning of the ritual. This is why Galatians was written. The letter to the Galatians was written because those Judaizers were saying, yes, believe in Christ, plus be circumcised. Believe in Christ, plus be circumcised. It's only this one ritual, this is one thing, that's all you need to do for Jews and Gentiles to do that. Believe in Christ and be circumcised. And Paul was so fuming when he heard that, that he wrote the letter to the Galatians and he pronounces a curse on them because they have a different gospel. He says, if, I, if we or an angel from heaven come and preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And even in, that's in chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. And then in 5.12, Galatians 5.12, he says, would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Paul wishes that they would be castrated and do harm to their own organ because they're preaching a false gospel, a different gospel, because they're adding to the blood of Christ. Nothing can be added to the blood of Christ. In our day, there are many such things that people add. Nothing can be and should be added to believing in the gospel of Christ. It's only Christ who saves us, not Christ plus something else. Well, Jesus continues, verse 40. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? After saying you Pharisees, now he says you foolish ones. He calls them fools. He does not mean fool in the sense of silly, like we see sometimes two or three-year-olds behaving in a silly way. He's not talking about being foolish in that way. He, when he says being foolish, he means it in the full sense of the term. He means that they don't have the wisdom of God. They have their own wisdom, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the devil that controls their thinking. That's what he means by calling them foolish. They don't have the wisdom of God to believe the word of God. They have their own wisdom. And those who have their own wisdom are actually fools. For example, the farmer who laid up treasure in his barns for many years to come Luke 12, 20, who didn't care about the life to come, he just cared for many years to come in, in this life. Luke 12, 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Not only will you not be eating from your, your stacked barns for many, many years to come, you're not going to be able to enjoy that. But what happened to your soul? You didn't give consideration for your soul. That lasts forever. Where will that go? And you never considered that. 
The people who don't see spiritual things and heavenly, eternal things are fools. Through the lens of Christ, whoever does not see those things, they are fools. And that's why Jesus addresses them that way. You foolish ones. Then he says, Did he? Uh, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? The he who made is God. Didn't God, who made the outside of the body, also make the inside, the soul, the unseen part of the person? Don't we have the material part of ourselves and the immaterial part? Do we not have not just a flesh and bones body, but do we not have that person that departs, as James says in James 2.26, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Don't we have a spirit? Of course we have a spirit. It says in Ecclesiastes 12.7, then the dust will return to the ground from which it came and the spirit will return to God who gave it. The spirit will be presented before God one day. Didn't God make the outside and the inside of us both? So what makes us think that God is only concerned about the outside? about the way we look or the way we dress and how we present ourselves to other people? What makes us think that just the outside, the external deeds are the only thing that matters to God? The inside also matters. The inside, our heart, our reasoning, our motives, they also matter to God. They matter to God because whatever is pure on the inside will manifest itself on the outside. Whatever is evil and impure on the inside will manifest itself as impure on the outside. That's the way it works. One can have an evil heart or evil motive, and that corresponds to an evil action. One could also have a good heart, a good motive, and that corresponds to a good action. But also, there's a third category. One could have an evil motive... And the action on the outside, in terms of the action visible to other men, may look good. So one could have an evil motive or evil heart and a good action. After all, isn't that what the Pharisees did? The Pharisees would do that. It's just upon further inspection of the external actions, it takes discernment to, to take apart that external action to see what was the evil motive behind it? What was the evil motive behind it? To see that it was actually hypocrisy. Actually hypocrisy. If you're not thinking, for example, and you're just uh, being carried along by your emotions, you see some business or some politician. They are on the, on the television and they are purposely demonstrating that they donated to such and such charity. Why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Usually, they are doing that for show. Now, if they are doing that for show, then the external action, that is, a rich man helping a poor man, that in and of itself is a good thing. Right? Depends on what, who the poor man is that's receiving it, and whether he's a worthless person or not, or whether he's genuinely poor. And if he is genuinely poor and the rich man helps him, then fine and good. But what was the motive of the rich man doing it? 
Did he have a good motive? Why did he have to tell the world on television that he did it? Why did the rich man, whether politician or businessman or whoever he is, why did he have to do it to tell the world? Why did he not just do it in secret? So, if we're not discerning, we might think, oh, that, that, that's a nice man, that's a nice business, I'm going to frequent that business because this is what he does. And he did it as a sales gimmick to get more customers to come to him. Or the politician did it to get you to vote for him. But he doesn't really care about the poor. He just wants more money from customers and more votes from citizens. That's all. So if you examine it upon further inspection, the evil motive appeared to be a good deed, and in some sense it was a good deed, but it really was an evil deed because he did it for show. Now, Jesus speaks this way. This is not an invention, in other words. It says in Matthew 7, Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Rotten tree produces rotten fruit. Or rotten root, rotten fruit. Good tree, good fruit. This is the way the Bible speaks. As well, we have in Titus chapter 1, Titus 1, verse 15. Titus 1, 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. To the pure, all things are pure. If we have a pure heart, what radiates out of the pure heart, according to this verse and even Matthew 7? Good deeds. If the Spirit of grace, who has power, works His powerful work in us to produce good fruit, then we will produce the fruit of the Spirit. That means if we have the Spirit working in our heart, in the new creation, in the tender heart, producing good, then we will produce good fruit. It will manifest itself. That's why he says, to the pure all things are pure. A good tree bears good fruit. It cannot bear bad fruit. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, that's the hypocrite, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They are defiled on the inside, and it shows on the outside. It says in verse 16, They profess with their mouth they know God, but their deeds show the opposite. They are worthless, disobedient, and detestable. So, the Pharisee did not understand this. The Pharisee and all hypocrites do not understand that God is concerned with both the inside and the outside of the man. The two have to be in harmony. We need to clarify a point here. Many times we hear that somebody, he does something wrong, does something clearly wrong, and it's manifested 
to everyone that what he has done is wrong. But they say, but he had a good motive. He meant well. He did it in love. He was sincere. We hear this many times. We hear this many times. They do something that's obviously wrong, but then we justify it or we excuse him by saying, well, he had good intentions. Therefore, it's okay. So don't be so hard on him. Let's work with him because he's actually a good man. He has good intentions. He just doesn't know. No. The evil deed is manifested because there was an evil motive. Even though it appears on the outside initially as a good thing. When you inspect it even further, you find that it's actually rotten. And whatever is rotten and exposes itself as rotten has a rotten core. Has a rotten root. Verse 41. Back to Luke eleven forty one. But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. Give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. Uh, the main way that this is interpreted is to say that that which is within as charity, that is, whatever their substance is, like what's in the cup and what's in the platter, food, for example, give that as charity have a real desire to help the poor, and then all things are clean for you. Then we will know that you really have a good motive. And from, clean, from a clean motive comes a clean action. From a good motive comes a good action. But the Pharisees didn't do that. In fact, they are known to be lovers of money. As it says in Luke sixteen fourteen. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. They were scoffing at Christ because they were lovers of money. A genuine desire to help people when it comes from within and is given as charity, then all things are clean because the motive was good and the action was good. That is one way and the major way to look at this. But I think that there might be another way to look at it and that would be as another way of expressing verse 40. Expressing verse 40, another way of expressing 40, in that, that which is within, that is, give your good motives or your good heart in a spiritual sense, in a spiritual way to other people. Be concerned about spiritual things, the unseen things to other people. And then, when you are doing that, then your actions, when they are done by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, then your good actions will be clean. Because it started from a clean source within. You gave it as charity. You were not seeking to do spiritual things for the sake of money. You did it without any money. You did it without any promise that they would give you some money in return for a spiritual benefit to them. Give it as charity. What you have within, your spiritual goods within, give that to people and then all things are clean for you. Because when you give in that way, inevitably you gave that way, not because you have righteousness of your own inside, but because the Holy Spirit worked in you to produce the fruit of the Spirit to help others in a spiritual sense. Whatever way we take it, we know that both are spiritual truths, however we might want to take it. So let's move on to verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. 
but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. But woe to you, Pharisees. A woe, when Jesus and the Bible pronounces a woe, a woe is not, hold on, stop, slow down. It's not like that. A woe is a pronouncement of a curse, a pronouncement of distress and disaster, calamity, for something bad to happen to the person. And in this case, of course, we know the ultimate bad thing that will happen is the day of judgment. They will not be prepared for that day of judgment. So he announces that. You behave this way, you continue in this pattern of your life, woe. Woe to you, Pharisees. That's what's awaiting you, the punishment of God. Notice then, in verse 42, why the woe? Now he catches them on something else. They pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. These were herbs, every kind, a couple of kinds, and then he mentions, and every other kind. There were certain herbs that they would give to the, the service of God and to others to, for the um, purpose of God, for the ministry. They would give these herbs as tithes, and that was necessary and good. As he says there, these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, what was the problem? The problem was they did what God expected them to do in the physical sense. Well, I paid whatever I needed to pay. Now, God should be happy with me. As though God will let you get to heaven because you donated some green leaves. Really, that's what they're saying. That's what they're thinking. They donated some green leaves, mint, rue, and garden herbs. Typically, they're green, right? They donate some of this to God and for the work of God, and they think God is going to get them to heaven because of that. Isn't that shameful? And not only that, but they disregard the weightier matters, as Jesus says in Matthew. They neglect the weightier matters, which is justice and the love of God. In Matthew 23, 23, and 24, Jesus says something similar to this, and he says that they neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Justice and love of God, right? To practice justice between one another, whether in the courtroom or day-to-day -day in everyday life, isn't that what it means to know God? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to love justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Isn't that what he said? Micah 6, 8. That's what he said. That's what I want you to do. Be people of justice. People of justice are focused on truth, evidence, facts. They deal with people fairly, not with bias, but with facts. This is the way justice needs to be conducted. Whether it's in daily life or in the courtroom, every day, justice, and then also the love of God, the love of God. To love God, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love him with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. As well, it says in Leviticus nineteen eighteen, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two Jesus said the whole law and the prophets depend on these two. And in fact, it's reiterated in 1 John 4, 
19 and 20, that if we do not love our brother whom we see, we cannot love God whom we do not see. So the two are bound up together. If we claim to love God, then why aren't we helping one another? Why aren't we loving one another? Because if we truly love God, we will help one another and to love one another in the biblical way. Love one another that way and show our true love of God. These two, he summarizes it right here, justice and love of God. These are weighty matters. Not whether I give some green leaves and then neglect justice and the love of God and subvert justice and the love of God and pervert justice and the love of God. None of that helps if you give some herbs to God. God expected these herbs and other things to be given for the ministry and for the sacrificial system. He expected all of them in terms of type and fulfillment, in terms of illustration and in terms of reality, in terms of symbol and terms of substance. And the substance of all of these things, the realities of all these things, the shadow and the substance of all these things are in Christ. So to the extent that the people understood Christ by all the symbols that were given to them in the Old Testament, by the animal sacrifices, by the candlestick, the menorah candle in the temple, by the incense and everything else that was there, to the extent that they understood it in relation to Christ, it benefited them spiritually. But when they used those as crutches, well, I already did this, I already lit the, the candles, I already trimmed the candles, I already poured wine or, or, and oil here or there, I already offered the animal sacrifice. I already did that. Now I can go out and do whatever I want. Ignore justice and ignore the love of God. No. Then they misunderstood. They needed to see those things as types of Christ and then follow Christ faithfully. Follow the law of Christ faithfully. They didn't do that. So they subverted the word of God. We too need to understand the Bible tells us to do many things. It expects us to obey Christ in many ways. But sometimes we get lost with those things that are lighter and we lose touch of what is weightier, what is heavier. What should our focus be? What should our driving focus be day by day? Right here we're told, justice and the love of God. Other things also matter, but they have their place in due time. 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Another woe is pronounced on them. Right here we'll see triple woes against the Pharisees and then some woes against the lawyers. Here, this one, a woe because they love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love pomp. They love show. They love demonstration. They love to be on the stage. They love to have the front seats because all the important people sit up front and all the unimportant people sit in the back. They love respectful greetings. Good afternoon, Rabbi. The right reverend. The reverend so-and-so. We hear these terms all the time. So-and-so is a cleric. So-and-so is a reverend. So-and-so is a, a, a bishop, a priest, a pastor. All these words are used in public to elevate the minister. 
They do it not to identify the minister as a minister, but they do it to elevate the minister. There's a difference between identification and elevation, exaltation. We don't need pomp and show. That's what Jesus is talking about. But these people love it. In academia, this happens all the time. It happens at graduations. At graduations, it happens because they have the professors in their long robes seated at the front and doing certain duties related to the graduation ceremonies and the distribution of the diplomas. They have that. And then they will highlight certain professors who have accomplished this or that. This is what they do. They do that because there's a lot of people in the audience and a lot of donors in the audience. And they want to show that this institution is worthy of your donations. They want their, their endowments to be inflated so they can spend the money as they wish. This is what happens in institutions. But also, this happens in seminaries quite often. There will be a guest speaker in chapel, a guest speaker from so-and-so church, and it's usually a big church, a mega church, or so-and-so professor, and usually a renowned professor. And then he comes to speak, the introducer, the MC, which is usually the president of the seminary, will say, will have a big long list of the, this individual's accomplishments, where he studied, um, what books he, which institution he's affiliated to, uh, what degrees he's uh, earned, what books he's written, how many articles he's written, where, el where all he's gone to preach and teach. They do all of this. And then he speaks. And then that's when it's deflated. Then you hear him speak and you say, what? Why was I told all that? This was a dud. <laughs> you see, often that's what happens. He's a dud because he doesn't tell us what's really in the Bible. Exactly. The focus was on him and not on God. This is why Jesus says to them, they love the front seats and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They're all about show. They're hypocrites. Next, verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs. And the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Concealed tombs. Sometimes there are unmarked graves. Sometimes that is the case. And people walk over unmarked graves. He's saying that people don't know that there's a grave there, that it's a dead man's body right there underneath, and yet they're walking over and think, because it's grassy there, it's nice there, that everything is just fine. They're unaware of it. They don't know that they're walking over a corpse or walking over a tomb. They don't realize that. And so, here, this is deception. This is deception. That the Pharisees have masqueraded themselves so nicely. They have whitewashed the situation so well that people find it hard to see what's on the inside or what's underneath the ground. There's a lush grass, a lush lawn there, and they can't tell that there is actually a grave right underneath it and that they're walking over a grave. We have enough sense, even if we don't know or, or practice ritual cleanness and uncleanness. In the Old Testament, there was ritual uncleanness if somebody touched a corpse. And they had to undergo certain rituals and sacrifices to become clean. The, of necessity, you have to bury a dead person, so those people who would care for a dead person would have to ritually be cleansed. 
But in our case, we don't need to, we don't do that because the new covenant does not require any of those things. But still, we have enough decency, don't we? We enough courtesy to know that even if something were unmarked, we would want somebody to tell us, don't walk over there on that part of the grass because somebody's buried right under there. Don't walk over there. We would have enough decency to avoid it. But these people are unaware completely. Unaware completely. This shows that it is possible, at least for a time for some people and lifelong for other people, to continue believing something, wholeheartedly believing it, thinking that everything is just fine, that there's no carcass or corpse right underneath, everything is fine with my life, I'm walking on the pleasant grass of life, and everything will be well. I'll make it from this point, point A to point B, walking through that lush lawn. Everything is fine. This happens to many, many people. They think, they get so enraptured in their religion. And this could be non-Christian religions, but even Christian religions, Christian denominations. It could be either way. They think that everything is just fine. And they have to be jolted out of it. Somebody has to tell them. Somebody has to sting them with the sting of sin and say, do you not realize that if you practice this idolatry in Hinduism that you are going to hell? Don't you realize that if you believe Muhammad, you're going to hell? You cannot have 51% of good works? That's impossible? That's what they think? That the scale, as long as it's 51%, 49%, they're going to get to heaven? And they have no certainty that they're going to make the 51% unless they go and murder people by being a suicide bomber? Then they will have a guarantee of getting to heaven? That's wickedness, foolishness asinine to think that that is the way to get to heaven and even within Christianity many many people follow those who lightly or slightly teach the Bible who are not careful to go and explain the passage that is in their sermon very carefully they don't do it very carefully the people are not in the pew are not reading the Bible so they don't know that the pastor or the priest has misinterpreted the Bible, they just take the pastor or priest's word for it. These are the people who are walking over concealed tombs. And they will be lost unless they repent, unless somebody tells them, hey man, wake up. Don't you see what your priest is doing? Don't you see what your pastor is doing? He is just milking you. He's taking everything he can out of you. He's not helping you live a godly life. He's not helping you meet your maker upon death. He's not helping with any of that. He's not helping you with your soul. He's helping you with your stomach, not your soul. So these people who are unaware of it, they will fall into a pit. Jesus said in Matthew 15, Matthew 15, verse 14, Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Yes, they will both fall into the pit of hell. Now finally, in this passage, we notice we have been speaking of death or eternal punishment or consequences to this wickedness, the day of judgment. We've been speaking of that. Have you noticed here what the sin is of the Pharisees? 
that produces a precarious situation for them on the day of judgment? They are hypocrites. Pride. Pride. Yes, pride. Pride is the source of all of this. And it manifests itself in hypocrisy. He did not say here that these Pharisees are guilty of mass murder. He did not say here that the Pharisees are guilty of adultery, serial adultery. He did not say here that the Pharisees are idolaters, that they actually bow down to images and call them gods. He did not say any such thing. These are some of the sins that we would say are the grave sins, and certainly those people will get to uh, will go be thrown into hell. They won't make it on the day of judgment. What is their sin here that leads them to hell? Pride manifested in hypocrisy. That's it. And that's why he said, Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. In verse 44, Woe to you. You have this judgment that awaits you because you have not rectified your pride. It manifests itself in hypocrisy. It's necessary to say this because sometimes Christians say, well, this sin is a little sin and it's okay. I'll, I'll be okay with God. You, you, are, you are too strict or the Bible doesn't really expect me to overcome this sin because it's really not hurting anybody. I'm not a mass murderer. It's really not hurting anybody and I'm just fine with God. Don't, don't talk, talk to me about that sin. Christians do that with this or that sin, all kinds of sins. They shouldn't. They should have a humble heart that trembles at the word of God. But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, verse 2. Let's be that way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.